We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. Someone said you, you want to be in this room with all of us and everyone in this room is a doctor. We're either MDs or DOs, we're PhDs, we have doctors in healthcare administration, we you know we have nursing doctorates, like you 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 and I think their term was the little certificate PA. Well, hello and thank you for joining us for episode 47. This week, we speak with Dr. Jeremy Walsh, the Associate Vice President for Academic Affairs and Associate Provost for Academic Strategy at the University of Lynchburg. Dr. Welsh also serves as the Dean of the College of Medical Science and was the founder of the School of PA Medicine and the founder of the Doctor of Medical Science program. He is responsible for the university's growth, vision, innovation, and structure. And I think you'll agree after listening to Dr. Welsh, what an incredible innovator and just a down-to-earth, humble man he is. The story that you heard in the quote about a doctorate is a big part of our conversation today. As always, you can learn more about our guests at our website at www.papathpodcast.com. Um, well, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to learn more about the University of Lynchburg and all the incredible things you all have been doing. Uh, from what I've been reading in your bio, it seems like you have been the instigator of many of those innovative things that Lynchburg has launched. And so we're excited to hear about that. But before we get started, we always like to ask our guests about their own personal path to becoming a PA. So could you just kind of enlighten us on what led you down that path and where you ended up? Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you again for having me. I'm excited to be here and talk with you. So my path to being a PA is probably a little bit more happenstance than many. And at least it seems now, as I talk more and more with students that are applying to PAs and go to PA school and new grads, you know, they're very intentional about it. Where when I was looking and, you know, the conversations started back in by 1999, I think. Uh, so uh, at that time, I was all over the board. I had been in a firefighter and uh, EMT and paramedic in New York for a couple of years. I absolutely loved the work, loved the profession and a lieutenant and a captain and actually kind of worked to get our EMS division within the fire department kind of up and running at the time. I absolutely loved it, but I was worried that I wouldn't be able to do it forever. Uh, I knew a lot of friends that were older kind of in the field that said it was you know kind of tough on you and that at some point it was always a great idea to have a backup plan. So I was in college at the time and uh, was uh, originally went to school to become an attorney. I liked law and uh, kind of went pre-law, poli-sci, decided I didn't like that and wasn't going to work for me and decided I would go undecided for a little while. And uh, then criminal justice, and undecided, then electronic crime investigation, undecided. <laughs> and then kind of by a little bit of happenstance at the time, actually was, uh, we were called as firemen to a car accident. And uh, it was a trauma, the car rolled over a couple times. And the, I was actually the only one small enough to climb through the car's back window, the car was upside down in the ravine. And I was the only one small enough to climb into the car and be able to pull the occupants out. Mm -hmm. um, and in doing so, I I decided, hey, medicine might be something of interest to me. And uh, I actually was an EMT only because we were so short on EMTs that they kind of begged me, demanded that if I was going to be sitting around at the firehouse all the time, that I had to become an EMT and not just be a fireman. So sure. I just kind of got there. Uh, I had 
I was far enough into college with all those other majors that I, I went to my advisor, who I'm not even sure I had met prior to this. I was just kind of floating through undergrad and mm -hmm. uh, said, you know, what are my what are my options? And, you know, at that time, of course, yeah, I had the same 17 year old, 18 year old thoughts as everybody else. Like, if you're going to be in medicine, the only thing I knew about was going to medical school. Yeah. So my advisor said, that's a great dream. <laughs> And your grades are fine, you could do it, but you're so upside down, you're going to be taking freshman bio with, um, and you're going to be seen. Yeah. Yes, that's okay. Um, so I still wanted to graduate on time. So I was taking 21, 22, 23 credits during my end of my junior, my senior year, try to get caught up. But there was obviously a gap year that I would have had to take to take the MCAT because of when my physics would have been offered. Mm -hmm. And my advisor said, hey, have you ever heard about being a PA? I had wow. never, never heard about it, knew nothing about it. Um, and uh, she was great about talking me through it, kind of what the options were, what the, the profession was. And um, I, I vaguely remember her, her talking about knowing a PA or had seen a PA. Some, But, you know, she had kind of that traditional stance of this is a great profession. You are a physician similar but you're not a physician. What do you think? I said, Hey, you're speaking my language. This sounds great. Uh, I'm not obsessed with going to med school or being a physician. I, I just feel like I have a purpose in medicine and you've made it sound good. So I, I did some research, but kind of on a whim said, that sounds great. I was at Syracuse University and then Utica College um, and Lemoyne College had a PA mm -hmm. program, you know, just a couple miles up the road from where I'd grown up. Uh, I did not know that. Uh, my advisor again said, oh, if you want to go home uh, or if you want to stay here, you, this is an option for you. I applied and probably due to me being a fireman in the region, I would be as my guess to why I got in because I now knowing what we ask students, I don't know if I would get in now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, you know, back then I, I talked about being a fireman, EMT, things of that nature and uh, was accepted. Probably didn't have that clarity of passion for PA at that moment, just because you were still figuring it out. I, I did not. And I will kind of round out this question with the, the, this last little story is that uh, we went around the room after I was accepted to Lemoyne. We went around the room and introducing each other and ourselves. And, um, you know, why do you want to be a PA? Why do you want to be a PA? Why do you want to be a PA? And in traditional slacker mode, I sat in the back. So almost everybody <laughs> else in the room had gone and uh, they got to me. And I said, I honestly don't even know what a PA is. And I remember people saying, how, what, how did you, like, why are you here? Like, there's no way you don't, you're not like passionate about this. And, and yeah. being here. so it was interesting uh, to be able to be there, obviously, I had a, a great experience there, and that uh, was life changing. And now we're, you know, I, I think, you know, it's this is my going to be my nineteenth year-ish. Yeah. Wow. So, what an interesting you know, because you've done such in, incredibly interesting things as a PA leader. What an interesting story in that. Yeah, I've served on admissions committees at three or four PA schools, and you know, as I think about all my colleagues around the table and those conversations we have. I think you're right. I think it, it would be highly unusual for you to get into a PA school with that story. Other than, yes, firefighting and EMT is a good background and community service oriented, et cetera. But um, with you not, you know, having had that light go off as part of your story, I think it, how lucky are we as a profession that the, the Lemoyne faculty were, were looking at a diversity of perspectives and experiences and had the faith that they could bring you along. Yeah. And if they had any clue of how much work that was going to be, I don't know if they would have, <laughs> they would have taken me. But uh, yeah, it, it was it was interesting that it, that it worked out. And it has been um, such an amazing uh, adventure. It's been such amazing joy to be part of the PA profession. I often think um, that my differing perspective about getting in and, and I'm often told I just think differently than people in general. But has always given me the perspective of being able to be in the innovate innovation space and more entrepreneurial space because I don't traditionally think like someone in medicine. Like I, I mm -hmm. it just hasn't been the way my brain worked. Um, yeah. So people say all the time, like, "Gosh, I wouldn't have even thought about that. Why? Why do you think about those things?" I mean, 
I, I would love to say I'm smart enough to answer that question. I don't know why I think like the way I do. Um, just a, a ray and of different experiences, I guess, through my my time. It's that that poli sci, uh, criminal justice, all those different pieces of the pie that contribute to a different way of thinking, maybe. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, and and I always have come at life that it really is an adventure. I mean, I've never. Um, I, I love working. I, I jokingly say to my wife all the time, "I should retire. I should retire." And she said, "You'd retire for about a day and a half, and then you'd be yeah. you'd be bored and, and be back at it." So, you know, I, I like the adventure of trying to figure things out and uh, working through them. So it's been it's been enjoyable. So, being a former uh, medic myself, uh, the, the first thing you think about with somebody who has that experience is you go into emergency medicine. What did you decide to do when you graduated? So that absolutely was the plan. I knew that I probably uh, did not want to be in a primary care office. And uh, although we, I don't know if Lemoyne is still had the, has this, but we, you know, it, it's not a advertised like primary care focus program, but we did talk a lot about primary care and there was a good, strong primary care emphasis, um, which I, you know, I think is appropriate and places, grads in a great place to be successful. Mm -hmm. But uh, I always felt like, eh, I just don't know if I want to do that. I did keep an open mind during rotations. I was that chameleon, for lack of a better term, like I'm in general surgery, I love general surgery. I'm in neurosurgery, I love neurosurgery. And including primary care, I really saw the value in that relationship and understanding mm -hmm. that you are not just impacting a single person's health, you're often impacting their health or their family or their ability to provide for their family. There was just a lot more to it than than maybe how I had come into it as, you know, being so trauma-based as a medic, it's, you, that's really kind of where you're at. Yeah. So what my plan was still to be in um, emergency medicine. I was offered a job in emergency medicine prior to graduating. I was really excited about it. It was actually in Syracuse at um, a, one of the great ERs. I did a lot of my training there and was really excited to join that team. And again, just kind of how life works out. I got a call the day before graduation that the company had been bought out. Uh, there was a you know a ER staffing company. Sure. They had been bought out by another company that did not like, and I'll use this term begrudgingly, but they do not like employ mid levels. They only they were kind of if you went to their their website today and, and probably back then if there was websites back then i'm sure there were but they were they were <laughs> in their infancy um, yeah. it was you know a board certified emergency medicine physicians only uh was kind of their slogan so they let go all the pas and nps including my already signed contract so i never actually even stepped foot in the building as a pa the day before i graduated so i ended up working in urgent care and some fast track for a couple of years before I did make it back into that same ED when they actually sold the company back to the hospital and uh, and then eventually the team health. Uh, so those were the two that eventually, I, and then I worked in emergency medicine for a while. So what brought you down the education side then? Well, so I'm an old school certificate PA. Lemoyne is a master's now, but at the time we were a certificate. So you, you know, you, you, I jokingly tell my students now, like, I spent a lot of money and uh, did all the similar training as everybody else, but I got a pat on the back and a certificate and no degree. Um, <laughs> I think the year after I graduated or two years after I graduated, Lemoyne converted to a master's degree. Um, and it was pretty similar process to what we we had, but uh, it was a no-go for, for me getting that. So I think that kind of triggered in my mind, well, you know, having a bachelor's degree and a certificate in healthcare it seemed like I would have to do more. I just, I don't know why I felt that way. Uh, it is comical if I, if I talk to anybody I went to high school with and early undergrad, and they would say, you've been to school this many times, like you are not the academic. And that is 100% yeah. real, especially in high school. I was very distracted by many, many things, but you know, sure. going off to, to change the world and get a doctorate degree was definitely not on the list. Uh, so. And I'm a first-gen uh, grad, so my parents did not go to college. And uh, so my parents were amazing parents and uh, very supportive. But, you know, college was a choice. If you wanted, to, if I wanted to do it, that was great. And if I wanted to work at uh, a factory, you know, Syracuse at the time had Chrysler. And uh, I worked in a factory 
making parts for Chrysler. And at 18, I made about $70,000 making parts in a factory. And most of my wow. friends kept that job. Um, mm -hmm. it, was, it was a great job. It had phenomenal benefits. It was UAW. It was a great place to be. Um, so leaving that to go to college was a very hard choice. But I sure. just thought, you know, it just felt like it was important. So with my certificate and working in urgent care and then emergency medicine, I very quickly felt a ceiling. I didn't feel that my opinion was always taken into account like I wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know who it was at this point, I, but I, it's, it's someone finally said, well, look around the room. Look at all the people in this room. And you want to you want to be here in this room with us making decisions. I said, yeah, yeah, I think I have good head on my shoulders. I kind of come from the side of the world that understands kind of like the real street. So someone said, you, you want to be in this room with all of us. And everyone in this room is a doctor. We're either MDs or DOs. We're PhDs. We have doctors in healthcare administration. We, you know, we have nursing doctorates like and you, you, you. And I think their term was the little certificate PA, I think is. <laughs> and of course, that kind of was like, ooh, at first it stung a bit. But then I said, well, I mean, honestly, that actually is real. So I completed my master's, University of Nebraska. And uh, like many of us did, great school, great program. And it was a, you know, it was a very innovative way to, for PAs that were certificates, like many of us, to, to, get, um, to get their master's degree. So nice shout out to University of Nebraska. And they, when I finished, I, you know, I came in and gave them my certificate. Hey, I'm master's PA now. And they're like, wow, that's really cool. Uh, you can be on a subcommittee. You can't be on the real committee. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. And, uh, you know, short amount of time, I ended up working in some level of administration. It was kind of very entry level and a couple of jobs came I applied for and did not get them. And I, I just, you know, of course, uh, liked the open dialogue with my medical director. Say, hey, why didn't I qualify for those jobs? Well, you're you're kind of the least educated person that applied, you know. And then yeah. he qu quickly, like with big wide eyes, said, "I'm I'm not saying you're not smart. That's not what I'm saying. It's just you know, right. on the credential side, you're just not there yet. But you know, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a great job. We appreciate you all that kind of stuff. So I was like, oh, that yeah. was interesting. Right at that same time, ATSU launched their Doctor of Health Science program, sure. and I knew very little about it. Um, it, but it's something triggered where I was like, yeah, I mean, I that that medical director is right. Like I don't have a doctorate degree and I can have a doctorate degree just like anybody else can have a doctorate degree. So applied, got in and uh, finished my doctorate. And when I did, I was still working for the same company. Well, well, I'll come back to my dissertation-ish part of the, the story. But I, I, when I had graduated, I, I showed them that I finished my doctorate degree. And the medical director that I worked with was very forward thinking. I, I thought that at the time, but now looking back was really forward thinking and immediately yeah. bought me a white coat that said Dr. Jeremy Welsh and called me doctor in the hospital, which really did not go well with lots of other people. Yeah, but it was just a very respectful person. And immediately I was at the boardroom. Um, I was moved to the director of uh, back then it was director of mid-level services again not a cool term but right. kind of a director of app in the ed uh, i loved the work but someone had planted a seed in my head when i was actually working through my research project and kind of dissertation defense for atsu um i wore i had a sports coat on but i wasn't the kind of person that dressed up back then so i had a sports coat on and i had a syracuse t-shirt on underneath it <laughs> okay and you know you're in arizona and uh somebody said hey i think they're want, they're gonna start a new pa program at clarkson university mm -hmm. i was like oh gosh clarkson's an awesome institution um it was known very well in circus for engineering uh, i did not know that they were into health and they weren't uh, pa and, and dpp kind of was their first venture in so they said, would you be interested? I know the guy's going to start that program. And would you be interested in helping out? There's not a lot of doctorally trained PAs. Would you be interested in doing it? And I was like, oh, no, like I'm a, I'm a badass trauma ER PA. And, um, you know, I'm not meant for books and teaching. I'm, you know, I, I, I want to be in, in the, the throes of it. Um, maybe yeah. an administrator someday. Hey, sure. well, just, just think about it. Just think about it. So I said, okay. And, uh, went back again, became an administrator at the hospital and started working. Well, I had 
a couple run-ins with hospital administration that really, really kind of gave me a bad taste for admin and how they treated APPs. I mean, it just, it really was a, you know, a couple run-ins that just, you know, they scar you. Um, you know, you're not a physician, you never will be. They really just did not want my insight. It didn't matter what it was about. I mean, it, had, it could have nothing to do with medicine. It could be with staffing. It could have been with the schedule. Um, yeah. And it really didn't matter. I mean, I'd spend hours on something and they'd say, well, you know, thanks, Jeremy, but we're going to ask Dr. Smith um, what- Yeah, the, stay in your lane. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Which, yeah. you know, back then there was, there was probably something more colorful to say, but very similar, like yeah. sit down, Jeremy, like no one cares. Yeah, right. And it just really kind of annoyed me. And at the same time, I had received a couple similar phone calls from the, the gentleman who had said, why don't you help with Clarkson's program and introduced me to the director of Clarkson's program and, uh, you know, said, this is something you should think about, something you should think about. And just had a day at work and I uh, saw an email saying, hey, just reaching back out. And I said, I'm going to do it. And I emailed back and said, I'm interested. Let's talk. And kind of went from there. Ended up leaving emergency medicine. I was kind of wound with uh, that's not how it played out, um, but I went up and uh, Clarkson's about three hours north of Syracuse, Potsdam, New York, and okay. was the founding DCE for um, Clarkson University's peer program, which was an absolutely phenomenal experience. I'm very appreciative of uh, Dr. Mike Whitehead. He was the one that gave me the chance to transition into academics. Uh, yeah. Again, I did not deserve it. <laughs> I had not. I had been an adjunct at Lemoyne, but I had not really, I hadn't created a syllabus in my life. I couldn't tell you at the time what went into one. I had no idea what ARC accreditation was. And man, that was a deep one I jumped into without knowing. So, yeah, I mean, there was, yeah, there was yeah. a lot that had to do with it. And, and, and he that, got you into the one job, right? The director of clinical education that, you know, is perfect for somebody who has no knowledge of all those things. Exactly. And the best part about it was they did not use director titles. There was a, a clinical coordinator and a didactic coordinator. Yeah. And Mike had reached out and said, you know, I'm, I'm starting to get this stuff going. Um, you know, you're the first person since you're moving up here. So, you know, what are your thoughts? And I said, well, I see a lot of other programs use the term director. Um, could we use director and not coordinator? He said, that's kind of where I'm leaning to like that idea. So when I went up and met with him, the, the comical part was I told him I wanted to be the director of didactic education. And I still remember his facial expression to this day. It was almost like this, well, isn't that cute? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have a clue what you're doing. And there's no way that we're going to have you be the, and again, I didn't know. I was just like, well, right. you know, it, it sounds interesting. So um, he asked me if I'd be the DC, <laughs> which I did accept. Uh, and it was it, it, absolutely wonderful. Uh, it, uh, I got to meet some absolutely phenomenal people. Clarkson University is a great institution. Uh, they really invested in what we were trying to do. The community yeah. there was really welcoming. Uh, Northern New York is really a big advocate for APPs. They understand that workforce utilization key that a lot of um, other hospital systems were, are, were slower to adopt. So I was very appreciative of that experience. I, I knew immediately I could not afford to stay the DCE transitioning out of emergency medicine into teaching the salary was extremely low it was it was a yeah. tough hit and i didn't want to sell my home in syracuse so i was living in an apartment in potsdam and keeping my home in new york um, mm -hmm. so i very quickly transitioned back into emergency medicine at night so i worked at clarkson from seven to three and i worked in the ed from three to eleven and i did that for three years um, wow yeah so it was a high burnout at the end of the three years it was over two weeks of it being about negative 20 in Potsdam straight up mm -hmm. there on the Canadian border for those listening that don't know upstate yeah. New York well but uh yeah it can get chilly up there super cold and I I woke up one day and said I I can't do the cold anymore <laughs> and uh yeah. that was the the catalyst to moving south it's interesting to me that your personal history of how you navigated academia and and the slights that you experience as a PA at the table who had lived experience in that ER and in that health system, yet your input wasn't valued 
sounds like very, very little. You know, I'm sure they they saw your your potential. I'm without a doubt, but you know they continue to push you towards if you want a seat at the table, get your doctorate so you have the the degrees like we do. How much of that do you think had a play in your decision to really push for a doctoral degree at the University of Lynchburg? And and I, I guess I'm bridging between the one and the other, but then I'd love to talk about the PA school as well in terms of the entry level program. But you know, there you've been been really out on the cutting edge of this. You and Randy Danielson and some of the others who have done the doctoral degree in PA education. Was that a big part of that? That kind of chip on your shoulder that you might have gotten from those experiences? Oh, I'm sure it I'm sure it contributed absolutely. I I will definitely say that my personality has always been one that if I see something that I don't think is working, I want to help fix it. I, I know that I'm not I'm often not the smartest person in the room, but I'm really willing to work hard to help either someone else do it or if no one else is willing to do it, I'll, I will try to figure it out, do it for sure. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it works great. And, you know, as people say, great leaders just surround themselves with smarter and greater leaders in other positions around them. And that, that yeah. really is kind of, I mean, that really is the truth. It's been the story of my success is just to find smarter people and, and ask them to work with me. Yeah. But yeah, so I think all of those things contributed. I will say that my experience at ATSU was, was very impactful for me wanting to start a doctorate as well. And never, ever did I think I would be the guy that did it. I just, it was almost like a common sense thing to me. And I remember in ATSU, you know, you get a million things you can write about. Um, and I would often write about a PA doctorate or why don't we have a PA doctorate or why do I have to leave being a PA to go get a PhD or EDD or some other degree in not PA? Now, granted, leadership is wonderful and you know administration is wonderful and higher ed and whatever it is that all of our colleagues sure. or, or Dr. Fell Science, whatever. But I just kept saying it's odd that we don't have one. And it seems like really every other profession does. I mean, that wasn't accurate at the time, but it felt like that. Now, mm-hmm. really every profession does. And we still were probably one of the last ones to get to that gate, especially because our profession still hasn't adopted it as a statement of importance. I mean, it's heavily discussed and I'm very appreciative of that. But as a profession, we haven't come out and said, you know, doctorate is important. We say, if it's important to you, it's good for you, but it may not be for the profession. And that's obviously a a touchy topic for lots of people, um, (laughs) which is great. Myself included. I mean, I was I was one of those that looked at you, Jeremy, when you first started this with skepticism. Yeah, you know, I'm just being honest. I was uh, I, I put on my old school PA hat like I'm that old, but I'm still not convinced that we need to have an entry level doctorate for the profession, although I'm opening up to the idea. But I am convinced that I'm often wrong and need to be uh, more reserved in my thought process rather than just immediately going to that old school heart. So I totally get where you're coming from on, on people like me. Well, and, and again, it wasn't because I thought I had the solution either. I mean, I, I think sometimes um, there's assumptions that like I started the doctorate because, you know, it was this internal passion and I had to, as a person, had to have it. And that's that's not real. I mean, really what happened was at ATSU, a lot of us talked about it. And if you mm-hmm. notice the faculty that are part of the Doctor of Medical Science with us at the University of Lynchburg, many of them graduated with me or graduated the year after me. And this really was like the best scenario college project uh, that you could ever tell a story about because we all got together and said, this is something that would be great. We should do it. We all high-fived each other, graduated and moved on uh, off to, you know, back to life and, you know, got going. And many of us ended up in senior leadership, hospital administration. We became faculty members and then kind of got back together at some point. But I mean, we, we, we started in 08, graduated in 10, some of us in 11, because you could do a two-year or three-year path, and they don't, mm-hmm. no one really does the two-year path anymore, but back then mm-hmm. you could do it. So we we just worked through it and thought it would be this great adventure, and, um, and then we had the opportunity. So when I decided to leave upstate New York, it was not necessarily to start a doctorate. That really was not the intention. I will say it was discussed a lot at Clarkson. So I don't want to pretend that it never came up there. We had some great faculty members there and a lot of very forward thinkers. We talked a lot about it. It was not at the time the decision that was made there. So when 
I decided I was going to go off to the world, the honest truth was it wasn't even because I felt like I had to be a program director. I just mm -hmm. felt like my my ability to have an impact had kind of slowed a bit. I was really tired from having to work during the day at the uh, institution and then at night in the hospital. But the hospital was fun. They had never used PAs in the ED, so I got to build their system, their protocols, um, became the director of NPC services, and got to like write the protocols and really build that system, which I was very appreciative. I loved it. Um, I had a very, very supportive collaborating physician at the time, and her and I actually ended up going into business later and started in urgent care and did a bunch of other stuff. So, I mean, we, we had a great working relationship. But I could tell that my my impact was going to be limited. I could see that coming shortly, there was not going to be the ability to have an impact that I was, I personally thought I could, could have. So when I left, I was really just looking for the next adventure. And that really is true. It's, it's how I've lived um, my, my life really like what's, what's the next adventure. I'm excited to try it and see where it goes. And, and th the interesting part of it was so many programs that I talked to really were kind of classified me as being underqualified to join the faculty. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. Because I talked to a bunch of programs up and down the East Coast. I mean, I, I just knew I wanted to be warmer, but I didn't have a destination in mind. It definitely yeah. was not Virginia. I had not actually spent any time in Virginia prior to moving here. Sure. Um, I planned on hopefully landing in Florida, Southern Georgia. I love the heat. Um, if there had been a uh, PA program in the U.S. Virgin Islands or something at the time, I probably would have applied to it because I I was really looking forward to some warmth at the time. You had to thaw out, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was done with the cold. So, uh, but people, I mean, the feedback was thank you, but no thank you. We don't know if you're, you know, you're you're not really an academic. Like you don't have pages of publications. You're not. Um, I was not really involved much in AAPA or PAEA. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I was not a known name uh, yeah. for. To, to definitely be truthful about it. No one had a clue who I was, which was fine. That's often how I <laughs> try, to, try to, to navigate. But uh, so I was skeptical to apply to be a program director. Mm -hmm. But in an effort to kind of see what the opportunities were, I went to PAEA. And I actually don't remember where it was located that year. But went to PAEA and there was a woman walking around with a t-shirt on that said program director wanted oh how crafty i know it was awesome advertisement and uh i was like well that's kind of cool and it's you know i probably would not have approached her but at some point i either curiosity to get the best of you or yeah like we ended up standing right next to each other or in line for something and i turned around and i said something like that's an awesome shirt like are you actually looking for a real <laughs> program director or is that are you just being sassy you know and she's like no we actually look at, we really are looking for a, a program director and i was like well, that's really cool where, where are you located and uh it was at jmu it was at james madison university sure yeah and it was after their longtime director, who I think had built the program and really got it up and running, was was retired. And so they were kind of out there looking for a, a new person to join the team. So I I said, well, that's really interesting. Um, tell me about it. Tell me about it. And she she told me about the school. She told me about the program. Uh, I thought she's like, you need to go go to the website. It's on PAEA. We have it advertised like or go to JMU like take a look. I think you'll really enjoy it. It, it. She was really, really nice. But, you know, I think she was also like, I'm not sure you qualified, but I mean, it, it, you should take a look at the job. Uh, so I thought, hey, I want to, I'm going to take a look. So I went to the website and uh, took a look. It was a cool place. Uh, you know, I, now I'm very fond of them. I know their, their director very well now. Um, but at the time, I didn't know anything about them. But as I was scrolling at the time, PAEA's website, was kept, was by state so and i don't think that's true anymore but at the time yeah, I, don't think so. I clicked and went to that area looked at jmu and right underneath jmu was that lynchburg college and i thought well i guess if i'm going to uh head south and and think about it and this jmu opportunity i wasn't sure if it would go anywhere or not i might as well call the one that's right next to it and see what they're looking for too so i talked to lynchburg college and right away it felt really good. You can just tell those conversations that feel good. I could see that they were really excited about building something that was not going to be cookie cutter. And I think that was their term. 
which I was appreciative of because a lot of the other programs that I had talked to at that point, they just kept saying, well, there's this ARC standard thing, and that's the Bible of what we do, and you just have to meet it. And I was like, well, <laughs> do we just want to meet the bare minimum, or could we build something really cool? And they're like, listen, these things are expensive, and we're not really interested in breaking the mold here. So just get it going, get it up and running, meet the bare minimum, and someday, like, maybe it'll be fancy. And I was like, oh, gosh, it's just, they're really not selling this thing. But when I talked to yeah. them for college, they said, well, we honestly don't know anything about any of this. This was a board of trustees thing. We were asked by the local hospital to start a PA program. So we know nothing. You'd be the expert. You'd be the, the person building it. You can build it as big as you want, as small as you want, as fancy as you want. So I knew nothing and never had stepped foot on campus. It was a phone interview. This was way before we were doing anything virtual. And, uh, you know, we did yeah. a phone interview. And I said, okay, thanks. Uh, hung up. They hung up. And I thought, that's really cool. I wonder if it'll go anywhere. And I kind of sat down and sketched out a couple things that I would want. And I made mm -hmm. a couple calls to friends that had been program directors in other places. And I said, here's some things you should ask about. So they called me back a couple of days later and they said, you know, we liked what you said. We liked your excitement. You're kind of calling us when we're in the last phases of our interview process. Like we already have two candidates that we probably would have made an offer to, but we're willing to slow it down a bit. If you can come down here quickly. And so we're talking, that's a 13-ish hour drive from upstate New York. So I'm like, okay, well, sure. But here's some things I want. And I said, well, you don't have the job yet, you know, like you don't usually get to request things yet. And I said, I know, but if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it the way that I want. And this is kind of me asking. So they said, okay. I said, I, I hate the term and sorry for anybody that's listening, including myself who has this title. I said, I don't want to give a degree in studies. Mm -hmm. I don't like the term. If we're going to do it, then we're going to give a degree in medicine. It could be PA medicine. It could be masters of medicine, like whatever it is, but I'm not going to, I don't want to have a program that's PA studies. I don't understand that. Like you studied to get a degree, you don't get a degree in studying. And they laughed. And they're like, again, I, I kind of felt that similar facial expression that people give me every once in a while. It's like, well, that's cute. But we're like, we're, we're not really going to do that. And I said, I want you, I'll sign an NDA, but I want you to send me the institutional finances. I understand that the institution can afford to do this. And if you're doing mm -hmm. this as a last ditch effort to keep a liberal arts small school out of the, the, uh, the bankruptcy stage, I, I don't really want to move to do that. And they said, well, we're not going to, we're not going to do that. Um, I said, well, think about it. And I said, and if I come, I want to start a doctorate degree. I don't want to do a master's degree. And they said, that doesn't even make sense. Why would you get a doctorate in assisting? That was literally what they said. <laughs> and I was like, wow. well, I mean, that might be the answer then. Like, yeah, we, yeah we you marked your hand to that. Okay. Right. I'm like, we might not be um, <laughs> married happily ever after. Like that, that's probably not the answer I'm looking for. So think about it. Uh, they called me back two weeks later, and uh, they said they gave me two of the three. They changed the degree to Master's of PA Medicine. They had me sign an NDA and actually gave me the institutional finances, and they were mm -hmm. in a great place. It wasn't it wasn't a Lester Shepherd. It actually was charged by the Board of Trustees from the Board of Trustees at the hospital. And they said, we will let you start a doctorate. We don't even know what that means, but we will support you after one year of a master's being open. Sure. We do want you to get that one up and running first. Um, so I said, well, we'll see. But yeah, I'll accept it and we'll see what we do. Uh, and I ended up going down, interviewing, um, and obviously the rest of its history, we, we, I did accept it. Uh, we ended up launching the doctorate for much earlier than they had initially told me I could. But uh, <laughs> you, the you don't take no for an answer very easily, do you? <laughs> no, I, I I don't, want, I don't necessarily always like the asking for forgiveness thing because I don't really like those conversations either, but I, right. I definitely am persistent. Persistent, yeah. yeah definitely yeah. persistent. I have to believe, I mean, not that uh, this would probably bore our listeners, but just from, I, I'm always intrigued by leadership. And I have to believe that whoever was on the hiring process, the, the search committee, the chair, whoever had those initial conversations with you probably took this back to the president or the provost and said, wait, do you get a load of this? This guy thinks he's going to get a look at our finances. This guy wants to do this. He, you know, I mean, we have two good candidates. Let's just go with the two good candidates. And a really smart provost or a really smart president said, there's a difference in this candidate 
and 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 he is thinking in a different way and, and that's something we should actually value and we should actually consider and that's probably I, I have to believe that it was the higher leadership that that got this and, and I don't want to you know undersell the person that made the decision to to reach out to you or that interviewed you but that is a very audacious thing to do and yet I think it's perfectly appropriate and you know it is interesting, and I know this is not unique to to me or to this scenario. But I I think when you do go into a position, when you're negotiating from a position of you don't necessarily care if you get the job. Like I knew that if I, if it worked out, it was going to be an amazing adventure. Yeah. But I also knew that if it didn't work out, something else would work out, and it was going to be right. okay. I, I had never stepped foot in Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, I honestly, uh, you know, people hate me for saying this, but even the name of the town, I was like, I don't know if I want to be there. Like that, just the name of the town. I was like, that that just seems like a weird place. And I'm from upstate New York and never heard of it. So just, I was was okay with wherever uh, I landed in that scenario. It is interesting, of course, after you are offered the job and then you land in town and you're building, then then they open up a little bit. And they did, I mean, they they really razzed me and said, like your initial requests were just so ridiculous and so out there that we we were almost forced to pay attention because we're thinking either this person is really going to come here and build something that is just going to change the world or this guy is just not stable. <laughs> I said, "Well, can I be both? Like is it okay yeah. to be both of us?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's 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 good to ride the ride the the rail a little bit. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's talk more about the school itself. So if I'm a prospective applicant, give me your university and you're now university of Lynchburg, correct? Is that Lynchburg college anymore? Correct. 2008, we transitioned and actually because of the doctor of medical science, it ended up being the third doctorate offered, which qualified the institution to be a university and the board of trustees made the decision. to. to oh, I bet you they, they were very happy about that. So I'm a prospective applicant thinking about the university of Lynchburg. Um, what's your typical pitch about the school and how to be a strong applicant? Well, the strongest applicants for us, we tell everybody is, um, I want you to pretend every single person that applies, including you have a 4.0. Every single person that applies, including you have perfect GREs. Every person that applied, uh, including you, is just set and ready and speaks to our mission. Now, what makes you different? And that really is what we, we look for. We want, you know, people that value service. We want people that have gone on mission trips that work in a, a homeless shelter. Um, and I know this isn't necessarily always unique to us. Uh, I know a lot of programs have really transitioned to, to this way of thought, but we, I feel like there's a lot of people in medicine, no matter what your credentials are, that are going to be really good in understanding history and physical and the CBC and making your diagnosis and having a great differential. But truly understanding that healthcare is a position of service and that we're really here to be able to try to make life better for someone or some family or, um, you know, that's the difference. And I think when we lose sight of that, and this is, uh, hey, I do this because it's a six-figure job and, you know, I really want to only work nine to five and I don't want to do this and I don't want to do that. I think that's where we start to to build some of the cultural issues that we have in healthcare now. And again, that's not unique to the PA profession. You know, apathy is widespread through healthcare right now. And I think it does contribute to kind of some of the issues we have. We, we've always looked for, for people that really want to make that difference. Um, and we're trying to be intentional about that. We also look for students, applicants, and future grads who are interested in leadership and advocacy. Some of my, and I'm currently the immediate past president uh, of the Virginia Academy of PAs and had served on the board in, in Virginia since I moved to Virginia. So, you know, coming up on 10 years now. And I've, so I've talked all over, not only Virginia, but then in, in other roles, talked all over the country with PA programs and PA grads or PA um, students or soon to be PA students. And very few of them have ever been talked to about leadership and that, yeah. you know, leadership starts in the, the patient's room, you know, being a leader for lifestyle modification, being a leader in making good choices and, and being a leader in educating so that the student or the, that the patient is in control of their future and you're there to educate them and be a partner. So we look and are very intentional about leadership and advocacy and understanding that that's truly, you know, at the core of what we should be doing. It's not an afterthought. 
I don't know how many students have told me, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Once I'm a PA and I have a salary and I've paid off my student loans and I've bought a house and I have my car and 2.5 kids and a white picket fence, then I'm going to get interested in leadership. I, I was telling, well, I think, unfortunately, then it might be too late. Like you might have, might have missed numerous great opportunities to have a positive impact. So that, that's really kind of our key at the, the, uh, the master's and the entry-level side. Okay, so in terms of the doctoral applicants, so a lot of our PA educator colleagues around the country have, and, and I've had actually grads from USC that went into medical residency, you know, post-grad residency programs in emergency medicine, orthopedics, who have a collaborative agreement with your university to get a uh, doctorate as part of that residency program or postgraduate fellowship. So as you're looking at applicants from the PA body, if you will, what, what are you looking for in those folks that are applying to your DMSC? Well, a lot of that is not different from the from the master's side. Absolutely looking for people that are interested in moving our profession forward. I think we, we I love our profession. I'm very proud of being a PA, but I, I don't like the apathy that I, I do really think exists. I don't like that a lot of the PA profession is still okay with kind of being in a subservient role. I mean, it shocks me that I, and as, as I say it out loud, I'm like, gosh, people are going to not like that I just said that. But I mean, it really is true that I don't know how many times I talk and people will say, I'm okay with people calling me mid-level as long as they pay my salary and they don't bother me on the weekends. Like, I don't care what they call me. And I'm thinking like that speaks to, again, the culture of what we're trying to do. If you're okay with being mistreated, as long as you're allowed to practice medicine, we are never going to have the impact that we can have because yeah. you already see yourself as being allowed to do something like you worked hard to be a PA, you worked hard to get that license, you worked hard to get your degree, and you're well educated to be in a position to have a positive impact. And if you're constantly afraid of someone taking it away from you, then you're never going to function at the highest level. Um, and, and that's just you know, my, my opinion. So we and when we're talking to people about the doctor and talking to people about being able to have that impact, I've always truly felt that education is the key to being able to have an impact. It's not the only key. And there's lots of great people out there that are that do not have a master's or a doctorate who have had absolutely phenomenal impact for patients, of course. For practices, constituency organizations, uh, AAPA. I mean, absolutely. So it's never a slam sure. on any of anybody that does not have a master's or doctorate degree. But I think it is a tool to be able to have an impact and to especially to open the door to be in the room to have an impact. Because I've always felt, and we talked a lot in the doctorate about this and the people that are applying, is that you know, the doctorate sometimes, and I'm stealing this from one of our grads, I've always liked how he said it, and I'll probably mess it up, but I'll try to say it as similar as I can. But having a doctorate is like a membership card. If you pay for the membership card, you stick it in your wallet and never use the membership card, maybe isn't worth it. Maybe it doesn't right. have any value. If you use the card to enter the room, then you're in a place where you can have that impact. And I always appreciated that statement. And I think it's really true. I mean, it, if everybody else in the room is a doctor, MDDO or other doctors, then it's really just to be able to be present. It's not because they're smarter than us or we're smarter than them. It's just about being in the in the right space. So I, we've, we talk a lot about that. And we want people to see that. We want people to value that. We talk a lot about the use of the title of doctor. You know, I'm a big advocate for people that have a doctor to use the title. Um, I don't mm -hmm. think there's anything wrong with it. I don't encourage anybody to obviously ever misrepresent themselves, which is immediately what naysayers go to. Well, you're going to misrepresent yourself. I mean, our, our patients, first, our patients are very smart people. And yeah. you know, by saying I'm a doctor and I'm a doctor in this, you know, chiropractors have been doing it for years. Optometrists have been doing it for years. Um, there's no one is like upset at the optometrist. So if right. general, the gentleman that makes my glasses is a doctor, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a PA or an NP being a doctor. There's absolutely nothing wrong. And in any other setting, we'd want everyone on a team to be the most highly educated, most impactful participant, right? Like we don't yeah. have great sports teams that have one great player and the other four are like, mm, you know, I'm just going to chill. I don't, I don't really want to have to contribute at a high level. You right, know? right. So those That's teams, a great I mean, point. I mean, maybe those teams exist, but we don't know about them because they're not making the impact that they could be making. So why wouldn't you want a team filled with impactful, highly educated people? But, you know, we the, the turf wars and the, the, the pushback is, I think, what gets in the way. So we, we talk a lot about this. 
with people that are interested in the doctorate degree. We talk even more about it in the doctorate degree. So we, we try to make sure that people really are out there trying to utilize it to the best of their ability. So I have to give you some credit because one of my colleagues went through your program when I was at SE and the transformation that I saw in her thinking, her strategic thinking, her out of the box thinking, it was, it was remarkable. Uh, you know, I think what you put together is really, really interesting. So congratulations. Yeah. Well, first we, I appreciate that. I will also give that credit back to our grads because I think a lot of the, our graduates, our students and our graduates, they come in with that. You know, our job there is to help them unlock it and to put them in scenarios where they think like they are the CEO. They think yeah. like um, they will be the be all and end all of a decision. And it may be a million dollar decision. It might be a life changing decision. It might be a decision that impacts workforce utilization for a whole team of PAs, that, you know, or nurses or physicians. So, yeah. I think those are some of the tools that we really like to talk with our students about because I I proudly say that I think once you've gone through PA school, you, you really are in a position that you have such a great, great set of skills. Unfortunately, depending on which program you went to and what environment you immediately land in, some of that can be stifled because you are told you are the second to the physician, and you are told you are the person that needs supervision, and you're told by the Board of Medicine, well, it's not safe for you to do X, Y, and Z without a physician signing off on it, or whatever it is. And I think that slowly plants that seed of doubt, that idea of like, oh, you know, I don't want to make a mistake. And I hear it so often, like maybe it is an issue of safety if I don't have a collaborating physician. So you know, we really try intentionally in the doctorate to say, set all that stuff aside. You're going to be the top of the chain of the pyramid of the yeah. whatever. How would you make the decision? And who do you bring in? And how do you strategically look at things? You know, strategic design or strategic thinking, design thinking, all terms that kind of mean the same stuff. I mean, that's big. I think it's often the way that I have thought. I think it's probably what let, led me to be the chief innovation officer at the university, which is has nothing to do with healthcare or medicine. That that position yeah. was truly around design thinking and figuring out ways to approach problems that um, people don't traditionally see. And you know, I wanted to say, look at how unique it is. But I wanted, I also told everybody, well, this is kind of what we do in the doctorate. We we teach people how to think in a way that is maybe a little bit different. You know, and it's it's often why, and I applaud our our legal colleagues that are lawyers and attorneys. But I mean, a lot of law school is just teaching how to think different. It's just teaching you a way to think that often other people don't, other people don't. And when you can use that in the day to day, you know, you often can see a couple steps ahead of where others might be thinking. Yeah. And I just, I want to echo what you said. I mean, when I was, when I was a associate program director at Midwestern University in Illinois, I had a Dean, Dennis Paulson. He is a great guy. He was a, um, Born in Wisconsin, so he had that deep Wisconsin accent and that love for Packers, which as a Chicago guy was not simpatico. <laughs> but but he basically, he just, he was very blunt. He's like, if you want to be at the table, you got to get your doctorate. And and if you get your doctorate, you'll be at the table. It's that simple. Yep. And, and I, you know, when I, I don't know that I really, because I finished my PhD in 2010, and then I left for USC. And USC, you know, their medical school is a very traditional has been historically a very traditional medical school. And immediately I was at the table with all of these brilliant people. Talk about imposter syndrome. Yeah. You know, these folks are graduating from Stanford and from Harvard and from Yale. And they're, uh, you know, they're designing, they're getting these $3 million awards for ophthalmology and other things. And, and yet your opinion and perspectives are valued because you have that membership card. So I think I was very resistant to it as a, as a guy who got a bachelor's as a PA, a master's at Nebraska. I was like, what do I have to get another degree for? I know what I'm doing. But I, I I can say with all honesty, I learned I've learned so much from that experience, and then being invited in the room that normally we wouldn't be able to be part of. So I I applaud you and commend you for your work. Yeah, well, well, thank you, and it's and it really was a team. I mean, I I can't say enough how much I appreciate and really, you know, I'll always um, kind of owe all the people I went to school with at ATSU, and and then got you know a lot of them came and worked with me on the faculty because. 
it was really that kind of brainstorming across the different ideas and, and opinions that I think gave me the ability to get up and say, fine, we, we're going to do something about it. Uh, so I, you know, I really appreciate all of them for everything they, they invested. And I, I will say that I wish more PAs with the doctorate would share those stories, because I do think that that is a very similar story for many of us. What I, when I lecture to our master's students and to the, our doctoral students, I say all the time, I mean, sometimes we're too PA centric. Like we think like a PA, which in clinic is great, but outside of clinic, we have to be a little, our brain, the way we think can't always be PA centric. You have to understand what other people in the room will see as a perspective. You have to understand that and in many senses, we should always value it because it helps us to strategically be ready to work with them towards greater goals or to be able to resist when they're pushing on something that would change our scope or something like that. And I think that that truly is part of the doctor's understanding that, you know, if, if you're, and I use this example in real life, if I worked for an insurance company, if I worked for, I won't name any of them because they'll, they'll find us and you know, be mad at us later. But you know, if I worked for any healthcare insurance company and I'm thinking, I got to save some money. Wouldn't it make perfectly good sense just to say, well, who's the least educated person? Let's pay him less. And everyone says that'll never happen. And I sure hope it doesn't. But I don't make that decision. So if somebody right. did, you know, and they already push on paying PAs and NPs at 85% because we're not physicians. Well, if at some point they said, well, if you don't have a doctorate degree, we have the right to, to reimburse less too, what would we do about it? I mean, so we always have to be one step ahead of what other people may be thinking about us. So what's, what's fascinating for me about this is like, uh, all right, as a profession, I think, you know, growing up in the profession, being in ac uh, the academic world since about 2001, seeing that kind of desire to produce great clinicians and the admissions conversations, it's about what they'll do for the clinical world. And I think nursing and other professions have done such an amazing job of doing exactly what you're, you're touting, which is looking for how are people going to contribute to society in a greater realm than just, yes, we want them to be great clinicians, but great clinicians also possess the ability to observe and, and assess data and evaluate and come up with innovative ideas or solutions to problems that their patients are facing. And so I wonder if you've seen that shift in your own programs that is allowing exactly what you're talking about, because doctorate is, ex is always considered you're an expert, you're a master, you've reached the pinnacle of your area of research or area of practice. Have you seen that in your programs where that attitude has contributed to a very different outcome? The kind of PAs you graduate are different. They have a different tool belt. I do think the, the curriculum and the environment that we attempt to create in the doctor of medical science is, is truly intentional to try to empower our grads. And it's in, to empower them to think in a way that other professions have been thinking about in a long, for a long time. And if you imagine it, I mean, you know, and maybe I'm going to get some of the details of this story wrong, but I'm, I'm paraphrasing and someone can correct me later. But, you know, why the original version of PA which wasn't PA at the time, was not accepted by the nursing model was because nurses were not going to be owned by somebody else. So then they revamped it and Duke accepted it and it was under the physician ownership. The other idea went off and became the nurse practitioner. Sure. And if you think about that, nurses are very clear that they are owned by nursing. Mm -hmm. Physicians are owned by physician organizations. And yet we are always somewhere where it's like we're almost okay being owned by somebody else at any given time. And I think that is truly the difference. We need to define our own value. If you allow someone else to define your value, it'll never be the way you see yourself. It'll never be at the top of how you feel you can have an impact. We define our value. And I think that's the way we need to think. It's the way we need to train all PA students in master's or doctorate degrees. You will own the PA profession someday, contribute at a high level, be a good leader, understand advocacy, and be ready to stand up and make good choices. But we, I think sometimes we have had programs and we have had leadership where we did not want to piss off our physician colleagues. We're always gentle with what we say. We're very calculated because we don't want someone to take something away from us. And I think that climate, the way we feel about a culture is because we've allowed it to be that way. Like we respond because this is how we've been trained to respond. And I think that's where we have to take it back. We have to be ready. And I'm not saying 
go to battle with our physician colleagues. I don't even think that's necessary. I really don't. Right. I, I mean, we are here to try to accomplish great things with them. It's not, we don't want to eliminate physicians. That's absolutely ridiculous, but they shouldn't want to eliminate us either. You know, yeah. so I think that's, we, we need to get to a different place. And that's all about the way you think. It's really about the way you think and the way you want to contribute. So I do think our grads are different, but I also, I'm, I'm also not the person who dislikes the other doctorates. I'm sure they're doing a lot of that same work. You know, I applaud all the other programs that have come online and, and really, you know, some of them have gone, you know, heavier into research or heavier into clinical practice. And that diversity is what will make us strong. And so I appreciate and applaud all of them for doing that. I'm, I'm not the guy that was like, well, we did it first and everybody else is, uh, you know, second. That's not the point. It's that we make our profession better and make our profession stronger. And the, the more we, we do this as a united group, the better. Um, I do wish at some point we had kind of owned the the title and degree that's a whole different story for maybe a different podcast day but yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but I, you know there's some ownership there that i wish we had taken back in the day but your argument about the physician aspect right i mean we it's interesting to me because when i started in practice i had a really innovative supervising physician that i started with in 96 he was a top chicago doc and he wanted a pa because he was turning away 30 patients a day to the urgent care and no slam to my urgent care colleagues, but in a primary care model, you're losing that continuity of care unless they're continuing to see the same providers in the urgent care, potentially. Maybe maybe I'm a little close-minded on that, but instantly those you know 20 to 30 people that are being turned away suddenly saw a physician extender, a advanced practice provider in his office. And he and I sat right next to each other and we would bounce off cases with each other. So it's interesting that we're not good enough to be colleagues, physician associates, if you will, but we're good enough to take care of your patients. You know, your, your 30 people are coming to see me instead of you. That's why you hired me. That revenue staying in the practice. And I'm not saying Scott was against that. He was way ahead of his time. But um, I think those physician colleagues out in the community that continue to, to put their thumb on our profession, show me the data that says that we're dangerous that's not there. And if, if that were the case, why are so many of your colleagues hiring us to be extenders of practice to increase access to care for your patients? You're spot on. I mean, I don't, I don't really understand it. I mean, I'm a relatively straightforward, blunt person, uh, if that's not coming through at this point. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's all that's, those are some physicians that really feel they need to control the practice of medicine, the ownership of it. I mean, it's, it, and I understand that there's always individuals that do things that are poorly thought out. But, you know, being in the different roles that I've been in, of course, lots of people forward you screenshots of what physicians are saying and physician groups specifically about, you know, slamming APPs. You know, and, and I often email back and say, you know, physicians that are confident and competent in what they're doing have no issues with APPs. Yeah. Physicians that lash out, it's often a statement about their own practice, their own concerns, their own inability to control the environment around them. And, you know, what do they do? They lash out at the APP. You know, if you're if you're unhappy in the medical system, change the medical system and work in a positive way to change legislation legislation or to get in front of uh, the board of medicine. But coming and kicking us isn't going to change anything. So yeah. you know, I often just kind of push it aside. It's it's one of the things you know I, I get a lot of feedback from from colleagues, which I I like. I'm uh, a person that actually likes all feedback, even if it's not positive feedback. Uh, just sure. helps me grow and learn. But people say all the time, like, Jerry, one of the things you do wrong is you don't, you're not present online. You don't comment on blogs. You don't have social media. You know, I, I think it's important to, to know your strengths. Those are not my strengths. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not an online blogger, um, you know, and it's, it's not, it's not, it's not my place for sometimes, but, you know, I'm happy to sit down with anybody and talk about the, the details. I've, yeah. I've appreciated that the PAEA sat down with me a couple of times and wanted to talk through the details. PAEA, I was very appreciative and, and really do give them credit that when I first went public with the doctorate, they flew me to Stowe, Vermont, and I visited with the board about mm -hmm. what we were we were trying to build at the university. And there were, were two other of our colleagues that were there with me, and we all got to talk about, you know, what the doctorate is and how we think it'll have a positive impact and whatnot. So, you know, I, I think there are organizations that are out there that really want to see change. I think there's there's others that, you know, I'm, I'm not sure sometimes I understand. Um I'm not in the room and that's okay. I, I have great faith in our um, some of our leaders. So I think it's important that they're there making those decisions. People ask me all the time, well, are you going to make this an entry level? And I said, geez, I don't have the power to do that. Like I'm, I'm one person, you know, I'm, I'm here to 
try to make the best impact I can. But if our profession goes one direction or not, I mean, I can, I can try to help and influence, but I'm not making. Yeah. Well, uh, Jeremy, I really appreciate your time and, and your insights. It's been really interesting to hear your perspectives and finally hear it one-on-one instead of through word of mouth, which is a, a good leadership lesson, right? It, it, you know, you've given us several leadership lessons that that triggered me today as a leadership geek. One is surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. That is a, a surefire way of, of being successful. Uh, you know, I love give people meaningful autonomy and responsibility and, and the tools and resources to be successful and get out of the way. Uh, listen. Uh, instead of uh, waiting to speak, uh, listen to to understand. And, and I, I appreciate all that. We always give our guests uh, one last opportunity to share anything they're hoping to share that we didn't talk about. So I want to give you that chance. Yeah, well, thanks. And for, thanks again for for reaching out. And I'm, you know, I'm excited to be here and I appreciate the time. You know, I, I think I really kind of hit on the things that I think are important, but I, I will say over and over again, I think all of us need to be leaders. It doesn't matter what you're you're degree is behind your name. And it doesn't matter if you're a single clinician or in a large group, but we we have to have a voice that speaks in a positive manner about the PA profession and what we're trying to do, that we're there for the patients, that we truly are the patient-centered care, although many other people use it as a bumper sticker buzzword now. Um, you know, we, we've been doing it for a long time and we should be proud of that. So, you know, my statement is be proud of who you are and continue to use your voice to try to improve everything around you because you know, someday <laughs> we won't be there. And, you know, yeah. we want, we want uh, that, that impact to be uh, that we were, we were there for the betterment of everyone. So. Yeah. Leave the world a better place than where you found it. So absolutely. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Jeremy Walsh, for sharing his insights about his program and about the doctoral movement in PA education. What a truly interesting interview. I really enjoyed getting to know Jeremy and his vision for the profession. Tune in next week as we speak with Cynthia Lord, PA Lord has been a PA program director for over 28 years. She is a national leader, a former president of the American Academy of Physician Assistants, as well as the Connecticut Academy of Physician Assistants. She's a member of the NCCPA Health Foundation Board of Directors and was the chair and immediate past chair for that organization. And she also served on the board of directors for the International Association of Medical Science Educators. Cindy is going to talk with our own Stephanie Vandermeulen. We'll have two hockey moms talking about life as PAs and as mothers, and it is a must-listen episode. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policies of the University of Arizona.